0: Happy Wednesday afternoon. I hope everyone's having a great day today. It's a little bit different. Usually I'm saying happy Wednesday evening, or last week we did film on a Thursday, but I'm glad to be with you. And I hope that you are blessed tonight as you're viewing these materials. Please make note that we do have the handouts available. You can go to www.littlerockchurch.net. And when you get to the top of our homepage, there is a link there that's labeled Bible Studies and it will pull up all of the handouts not just for the recent video sessions but even all the way back to the background material that we were doing in our opening sessions together as we gather today as we prepare to dive into God's holy word would you join me for a moment of prayer Heavenly Father we thank you for the beautiful treasure that is your holy word Lord, as I think of the words from Psalm 119, we are to hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. And Lord, the only way that this is possible is as we spend time in the word reading and rereading and studying and prayerfully meditating over its riches that we're able to understand what you have for us and we're able to take these words some 2,000 years old and apply them to our situation today and to rediscover what it means to live as a kingdom people. Lord, I ask for your hand of blessing to be upon all who are viewing this tonight. Be with me, give me the words to say, the clarity of speech. May these moments together be a time of learning and growth for me, for my brothers and sisters, so that we might apply these words and grow closer to you and be the church that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. When we were last together, we were in chapter 9 of Matthew, and we're still a few verses from the conclusion of chapter 9. So I'd like to invite you to join me at Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, and we're going to take a few moments to finish out that chapter before we move over into chapter 10. Matthew chapter 9, picking up at verse 27, we hear these words, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, and they cried loudly, Have mercy upon us, son of David. When he entered into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this for you? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done unto you. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus sternly ordered them, See that you say nothing to no one. Make sure that no one knows anything about what has happened. But they, the blind men now healed, went out and spread the news about him throughout that district as I've cued in on these last couple of Wednesdays, we're looking at a series of interactions between Jesus and a variety of people. We moved from the Sermon on the Mount back out into the practical everyday realm of ministry where Jesus was encountered by a number of people. Some were Gentiles, some were of a questionable reputation within society, by that I mean they were outcast, they had been Ostracized because of an issue of blood or a leper, in that case, very early on in our study. We continue in that line of thought, but here we find Jesus interacting with two blind men, and it's a very different miracle setup. It's a very different encounter than what we've seen in other times and places. Earlier in our discussions, we found people who come to Jesus, they fall before Jesus reverently, and they issue their request. We find, as is the case with the woman with the issue of blood, that she mingles in with the crowd and she believes unto herself. If she can simply reach out and touch a portion of Jesus' garment, she will be healed. But here, we find two blind men crying out to Jesus that God's Son may have mercy upon them, but rather than turning their way, rather than focusing his attention right then and there, it tells us that Jesus goes on into the house. And that seems so very uncharacteristic of the Jesus we're most accustomed to. We think of Jesus being available at every beck and call. I don't believe in this text for one moment that Jesus was trying to snub the two blind men, but I do think that it was a test in the sincerity of their faith, as in they had to pursue Jesus. How bad did these men desire their healing? How strong was their faith? Were they only understanding Jesus as being a a magic maker, someone who could work good deeds, do with them what they wanted, and then go on about the rest of their lives? But now we find that there's an element of faith that really tests our drive, our desire, if you will, the fact that God doesn't simply dole things out on our terms and our timetable in life. And just like these two blind men who had to go in, they had to follow Jesus, they had to go to where he was in order to experience that healing, we can all relate to that in our own lives because how much of our faith journey is based upon what we call wrestling? We don't get the simple answers that we long for. We don't get the information that we desire when we wrestle with life's questions. And so there's that sense of really pushing our faith, testing our faith, deepening our faith. And I believe that's what happened in that moment with the two blind men. The fact that their faith was so sincere that they were willing to go wherever Jesus was, whatever it took in that moment, in order for their healing to occur. The terminology that's used there by the blind men in reference to Jesus is a little bit of an image from the Old Testament. It's a, a messianic title, if you will, the fact that they don't say, hey you, hey Jesus, teacher. They use the language of son of David, who would have fallen into that messianic category, that one like David, who would be another great leader for God's people. That had been one of the things that God's people had longed for for generations. The quality, the caliber of another king just like David who could come and lead them in the right way, not just politically but spiritually and keep them on the right path with God. That is something that had not existed since the leadership of King David and the people were anticipating that. Here we find that language coming up from these blind men as they cried out, Son of David, have mercy upon us. I love the way that that is described there, the fact that they asked for Jesus to extend mercy to them. They don't come out and say, hey, we can't see, we need some help. Jesus, do thus and such for us. But they say, Son of David, have mercy. Mercy, And I believe that's one of the most powerful prayers, one of the most powerful cries that anyone can issue in life. Not just, Lord, give me the stuff that I want, but truly have mercy upon me. Lord, I don't deserve this, but may I experience your goodness in this moment. That's one of the powerful things about things such as grace and mercy. We think of grace being God's unmerited favor. We get something that we don't deserve, but then with mercy we don't get what we really do deserve. Once the men arrived into the place where Jesus was staying in that moment, Jesus paused and presented a question Do you believe that I am capable of performing this healing for you? Do you believe that this is a possibility? And that's, again, another one of those tests of faith, because faith is important throughout Matthew's gospel. The sincerity of people's faith, the depth of their faith at that moment, and ultimately the growing of people's faith as this story unfolds about Jesus. That's a story of our faith as well when you think about it. Are any of us fully mature right here, right now, when it comes to our Christianity? Are all of us today right where we really want to be in our relationship to God? Hopefully that answer is no, because as long as we're living in this life, there will be room to grow. There will be opportunities to learn and discover more about who God is and what his word has to say and how it relates to us. The two men, they obviously give that favorable reply, and it says that Jesus touched their eyes and says, according to your faith. Very similar to what Jesus said to the woman with the flow of blood in the previous section. It wasn't the fact that the woman reached out and touched the tassels on Jesus' garment. It was the faith that Jesus commended And here with the two blind men, it is that same word, faith, that is commended by Jesus. The fact that they possessed this belief, above all beliefs, that Jesus could truly do the things that Jesus was capable of and proclaimed. Now, I don't know about you, but as the story ends, I probably would have been quite a bit like those blind men. If something so enormous something so life transforming had taken place for me who wouldn't want to go out and share that kind of information certainly the story would get around because they would see those of us who were physically blind and then obviously we'd be able to see the next moment so what what's different what happened how did all of this come into existence Jesus issued a warning, and that's something that's very common throughout the Gospels. It's very prominent to Mark's Gospel. We find it in places within Matthew's Gospel as well. Mark's Gospel specifically refers to it as what's called a messianic secret. Now, by that, I don't mean that Jesus is trying to deceive people, that he's trying to hide his identity, he's trying to trick anyone for, for even a moment, but what Jesus does understand about his ministry is the fact that people are going to see him and perceive him from a certain angle, a certain direction. And Jesus came into this world to do more than just provide physical healing. He came to do more than just do some really great things to make society better. He came ultimately to give his life on the cross at Calvary as we celebrate there in this holy week so that we might be forgiven of our sins, something that is far above and beyond anything that's physical. Jesus did not want to have the reputation of being the fixer-upper the one you go to when you want something, but truly the Messiah, the one who was sent to suffer on behalf of humanity so that we might discover cleansing, And not just a cleansing where we have to go back and offer sacrifices after sacrifices, but the kind of cleansing that is once and for all, where we confess, we repent, Christ comes in to be our Lord and Savior. We still have to repent on a daily basis. But that's the Jesus that we acknowledge. There there are so many people in the world who want to focus on just one facet of Jesus. And that certainly could have been the, the misconception in Jesus' very own day and time. The fact that people knew that he was a miracle worker. Go see Jesus. He'll do some wonderful things for you. But Jesus needed people to understand that to follow Christ, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven was also going to come with its challenges. As we move into the next portion there, picking up at verse 32, it says, after they had gone away, referring to those blind men who had been healed, a demoniac who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed and said, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, by the ruler of demons, he casts out the demons. If you can't beat someone. Join them is a phrase that's very popular in our world today, but in Jesus' day and time and in the context of where we are in the gospel, if you can't compete with Jesus, if you're not willing to side with Jesus, then do whatever you can to ruin his reputation. And that's what we've seen already with a group of scribes who have accused Jesus of blasphemy at the very beginning of Matthew 9. And now we find the Pharisees rumbling in the background and they're accusing him of being able to cast out demons by being demonic with his own power. That just does not seem like a reasonable, logical argument, but that is exactly what they tried to do to disprove, dispel, discredit the work of God's Son. It's interesting to note in that brief section there that it's the first time in Matthew's Gospel that we have an illness that is attributed to demon possession. Now, a few weeks ago, I told you about the story of the demoniacs, the Garrison demoniacs as Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. And there's not really any physical explanation about their ordeal. It just says they were doing very crazy, erratic, unusual things, staying amongst the tombs. But in this story, the fact that this man is deaf is attributed to a demon that has come, that has taken over, that has prevented him from being able to communicate verbally, to possibly be able to hear clearly, and we're going to find that at other places. But again, we understand so many things about medicine today. We know that not every condition in the world, somebody breaks a bone, someone has cancer, someone has a uh, heart catheterization. We don't use the language of demon possession to describe any of those conditions. We learn so many things through anatomy and physiology classes and biology, how all of these systems of our bodies work together and how cells and things can break down from time to time and cause various conditions so when there was not really a logical explanation demon possession was sort of the the catch-all category for why things happened the people's response we noted that the pharisees accused jesus of being empowered by the devil to cast out these demons. But now we find the crowds once again being amazed. In fact, it says they never had seen anything like this in all of Israel. Now, if you really want to get on the bad side of the religious leaders, make a statement like that if you're one of the common Jewish people. Because the fact that they had never seen anything like this, obviously we've already mentioned that Jesus came to do more than just help people out and perform miracles. But even in his teaching, he was so far above and beyond anything that they heard at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says they were completely amazed because he spoke with such power and authority. Now that doesn't say a whole lot for the religious establishment, does it? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they were pretty much set in their routine. They were focused on their traditions. They really didn't do anything that was life-giving for the Jewish community. And now Jesus has come onto the scene, and people are discovering things that they haven't seen in their lifetime, and it's overwhelming, Could you imagine living in Jesus' day and time? You've never seen such miracles. You've never heard such wonderful teaching. And then, boom, here comes this man, Jesus. And he's really shaking things up. He's turning the the world right in there around Capernaum upside down for the kingdom of heaven. Moving beyond that, Jesus goes about his ministry in a very general way. This is very similar to something we saw back in chapter 4 when Jesus began to perform a few general miracles. There aren't really any specifics given here picking up at verse 35, but it does seem to be kind of a transitional point as Jesus is moving from one focus, one emphasis, such as ministry into the Sermon on the Mount... Now he's in ministry, but he's getting ready to move into another body of teaching that takes up the fullness of Matthew chapter 10. Verse 35 says, Then Jesus went about all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and sickness, Now when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers they are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The compassion, the mercy, the grace, the love with which Jesus Look at people. If only we could see people that way. If only we had the same kind of Christ-like lenses with which to see the pain, the suffering, the challenges of people in the world around us even today. Jesus looked out upon his fellow Jews and he saw a people, not just who were hurting physically, who came in need of that form of healing, but he saw a people who had been misled and been misguided for generations, you might say. The religious leadership really had not fulfilled all of their goals and responsibilities that God had established for them, and instead of leading the people into a close-knit relationship with God, in a way the religious establishment were driving a wedge into the relationship between God and God's people. Now what's so important to notice about this text is not just the fact that Jesus looked out and that he was moved with compassion. Real quick, let me point out to you that word compassion there. It means to be touched in the very deepest part of one's existence all the way down to the very center of one's being. These people and their condition touched Jesus. And until we allow God to soften us and allow us to work in our hearts so that we're able to have that kind of feeling toward people, we really miss out on what it is to do ministry to the population around us to our fellow brothers and sisters within the community of faith, and obviously those out there in the world who don't know Christ, those who are down and out, the least of these, however we wish to define those men and women and young people, until God does a work right here, it is impossible for us to really see them and appreciate them and attempt to understand those individuals on their terms, right where they currently are in life. Jesus could have easily dealt with the situation right then and there. We often say that of Jesus, that when we look at the world around us, God could snap his finger, make everything well, make everything peaceful in society. But one of the wonderful things about this journey of Christianity Being a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ is the fact that Christ invites us in to be a part of something. Jesus could not be every place at every time when he walked on this earth. He did some phenomenal things during that time, but if you think about it, his range of travel was very much limited. To the northern portion of Galilee and the few treks that he made down to Jerusalem, he was in one primary location. But what he does say here is the fact that there is a harvest out there and workers are needed. Doesn't say one worker. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do all of this stuff by myself and you all just take the credit, but he invites his disciples into that work that he was doing. And here is where we start to really understand what Jesus said very early on in Matthew about, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Jesus had taught, Jesus had performed miracles. Now at this moment in the story, Jesus begins to equip his followers to continue the work that will happen long after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Now that terminology is still a a little ways away, although the word cross is gonna come up for the very first time in Matthew 10. God knew early on that his kingdom work would be fulfilled through people working together. How well do we fill our role, our place, our responsibilities within God's kingdom work? We often say, well, somebody will do it if I come up short. Somebody else will take place, that's not, uh, will we'll, we'll take care of that, that's not uh, within my, my job description, that's not something I'm really comfortable with doing. It's easy to find opportunities to get off the hook, but here Jesus has invited his followers and God continues to do that even in our world today to share in this ministry of his kingdom. And it's that transitional point that sets the stage for Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is going to be the second of the five teaching portions of Matthew's gospel. As we talked about in our very early study of the background material, Matthew is known as the teacher's gospel or the teaching gospel because there is so much teaching that happens in really long portions of the scripture. And in chapter 10, the attention is going to focus not so much upon just general discipleship as with the Sermon on the Mount, but here we find that the focus narrows down upon the mission that Jesus was preparing these apostles to go upon. Now notice just then I said something I don't say a whole lot because most of the time I use the term disciples. But just then, I referred to the 12 as apostles. What is the deal? What is the difference? The words are similar, but at the same time different. They at the same time function together while being unique. But when we think about it, they all do essentially the same practice of the faith. The word disciple means one who learns from, one who studies beneath another, the one who is apprenticed to someone so that he or she is able to learn not just information, but it may be a a particular trade. The word apostle, on the other hand, comes from a Greek term that means to send out or to send forth. Disciples learn, but when we go out into the world as the sent people of God, we function more in that apostolic role. Disciples learn so that they are equipped to be sent. Hopefully that clarifies some things. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. And when we look at Matthew's gospel, this is going to be the only time that the language of apostles is used. Most of the time, the term apostles comes up in Luke's gospel and also in the book of Acts, the companion volume, if you will, to Luke's gospel. Anytime that It comes up, it usually is in reference to the original twelve apostles, those 12 who followed Jesus very, very closely. Now, when you look at other denominations and Christian traditions, apostles can certainly take on a very uh, important status, a leadership role within those congregations, those denominations. Uh, we're very much structured differently as original free will Baptists, but when we look at our role as Christians, we find that both of those things are active in who God wants us to be. The fact that we come to Bible study, we come to worship, we sit down and we study in our personal time so that we might discover who God is and what God expects from us, and then once we've had the training or the opportunity to be equipped, we know how to do the work of ministry. We understand the practical dimension of living our faith on a regular basis. Picking up here in verse 1 of chapter 10, we hear these words. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to cure every disease and every sickness. Now these are the names of the 12 apostles. The language changes there. First, Simon, who was also known as Peter his brother Andrew, James the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. That is the one time in Matthew's gospel that you get all 12 Mentioned together. We've had a few call stories early on from the fishermen. Earlier in, uh, in last week's study, we looked at Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, joining with Jesus' group of disciples. This is the only place, though, that you're going to find all of them lumped together. You're going to find a few of these guys who are mentioned at other places in the Gospels or in the early church, but within Scripture, Some of those names are found just in their listings within the Gospels. A lot of traditions beyond the scriptures within the early church tell us some things about different individuals and what they went on to accomplish, the places that they went and performed ministry. But when we look at the four Gospels and the book of Acts, we just don't have those details. But there's always been one thing or two things really when I think about it, to look at this list of disciples or apostles. One is the fact that Christ invited ordinary people into this journey of ministry. He didn't go to Jerusalem to the religious elite. He didn't go knocking on the doors of the Roman Empire saying, send me some of your most knowledgeable men. He called people Where they were ordinary common fishermen, a zealot, a tax collector, even one who would go on to betray him later on in his earthly ministry. Jesus invited ordinary people into the process of God's kingdom. And the same can be said for us today. Not all of us are ordained clergy. Not all of us can lead a denominational ministry or pastor a congregation, but this story shows us that Christ doesn't just call special people, God calls all of us and invites us into this journey and he equips us, he disciples us, if you will, into the ways of his kingdom so that we might continue to represent him in the here and now. Something else that's interesting about that group, it's sometimes referred to as kind of a a motley crew because they are a very diverse group. You have a lot of different personalities there. You have fishermen. You have a zealot. A zealot would have been someone who would have been very much antagonistic toward, opposed toward anything related to the Roman Empire. In fact, zealots were known to carry little daggers around with them, and if they had the opportunity to stab someone of the Roman Empire, then they were certainly uh, willing to do that because they just had such bad blood, bad taste, and hard feelings for those of the Roman Empire. And then a tax collector, really one of the most hated people within Jewish society. But Jesus saw potential in him and invited him. Jesus took very different individuals, different personalities, different lifestyles there, different professions, and put them all together for the common good of his kingdom. And that's one of the things we can say about us as the body of Christ, the local church, the church universal, is that God is able to take unique men, women, children, youth, and put us together in spite of our differences and our uniqueness. And he is able to work us together. He's able to minister through us when we allow God to establish that quality of unity. Verse 5 is going to introduce the mission of the apostles as they're being sent out. In fact, when you look at this particular text, one scholar has pointed out that there are three R's that describe well the work of Jesus' followers. Uh, One here, we have the requirements, the, the what. What are you supposed to do when Jesus sends you out? There are the responses to the mission, those who will answer to you in some very different ways. Some people will be maybe more receptive than others. And then finally, the last R would be the rewards of the mission, the outcomes. What can we expect? What are some of the the plus sides, if you will, of being a part of God's kingdom work? Before we can really get too deep into it, though, we have to look at the requirements. Verse 5 says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but enter no town of the Samaritans either. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's very important. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, then let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, then shake the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the lands of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Jesus sent forth the twelve, and he gave these instructions, instructions that may seem a little bit unusual, because when we think about the gospel of Christ, we consider that to be something that's pretty inclusive, where it is available to to any and everybody who will receive God's precious gift. It seems a little bit out of Jesus' character to think that maybe, just maybe, Jesus was playing favorites, Jesus was trying to limit the, the, the spectrum of God's love and goodness through his ministry, but that's not exactly what's going on here. We've already found some interactions in previous chapters between Jesus and the non-Jewish Gentile population, if you will, and those encounters were very favorable. They were positive. Jesus ministered. He expressed uh, the, the wonderful faith that those individuals had But now, what's Jesus doing? Is Jesus changing his tune? No, one thing we've got to remember about Matthew's gospel especially is the Jewish nature of this book the Jewish nature of this book. There are a few examples of Jesus interacting with Gentiles. And by the time we reach the end in Matthew 28, we hear those words of the Great Commission to go into all of the world and make disciples. So why here, why now was Jesus limiting the scope, if you will, of his disciples' ministry. Well, one thing we could say about that is the fact that Jesus was Jewish and he did come for the Jewish people. And so they would be given a fair opportunity to accept or reject what God was doing through Jesus' earthly ministry. It was their choice. We could also say that Jesus was limiting the scope of their ministry because when you think about it, when we do a particular task in our lives today. When we focus all of our energy and all of our efforts on one certain thing, it is easy for us to give our very, very best efforts. And so you might suggest here that the disciples, instead of being scattered here, there, and yonder, and everywhere in between, were challenged to focus, to give their best quality work in one place without being scattered so abroad. Because think about it in our lives. When we try to multitask, when we get a lot of things on our plate, we might do one or two of those things pretty good. But as things start to hang off the sides of the plate, the quality of our efforts may decrease with time because we just don't have the energies to put 110% into every single facet of life. So Jesus was focusing the attention of his disciples. But what's all of this language of don't don't take anything with you? Does Jesus not want us prepared? Is he going to just send us out and tell us to, to beg for what we need? There's a couple of things that we can say about this point in the story. And I believe the most important one to focus on is the fact that Jesus knew that those who followed him would have some very different understandings about what we call priorities. When we look at our lives today, we all have things that we're connected to. We have family with all of our family obligations. We have our jobs. We have our hobbies that we enjoy doing, our various forms of recreation. And those are all good things, but if things get out of perspective, out of kilter within our lives, even those of us who are people of faith it's easy for certain things to receive more attention in life than other things. And a lot of times it's the less significant things that receive all of our focus and all of our effort rather than that which is focused on the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted the twelve to go forth and not to be worried, not to be attached to anything that was back at home, anything that could prove to be a hindrance in their ministry because Jesus knew then as is the case today that when a person becomes attached to something else he or she is probably gonna go back to where he or she started we looked at that earlier when there were the two individuals who came so enthusiastically to Jesus I'll go wherever you go well the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head Oh, I'm, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but uh, let me go and, and take care of my family obligations. Pretty much those two individuals were not really all in for what Jesus was inviting them to. Jesus wanted his disciples to know then, as is the case today, that when you follow me, when you go out to represent me in the world, there can be no other loyalties. There could be no other focus. You have to give my kingdom every part of who you are. So don't be attached to the things. It can be hard for us to let go of things, can it? It can be difficult for us to, to look at Christ's invitation and say, oh, that sounds great on the surface, and I, I really want to commit to that, but oh... There's some other things that are important in my life that, I'm sorry, Jesus, but but maybe next time. Jesus wanted his followers to be focused. What can we say about the essence of that ministry? If you'll notice the language that's used there, when Jesus commissioned them at the very beginning of chapter 10, he builds upon that a little bit here later on in chapter 10 with verses 7 and 8. But the point that I want us to go back to, and I mentioned that as I was reading, proclaim to the house of Israel the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In the very opening portion of chapter 10, we were told that Jesus gave them authority to go out and to heal and to cast out demons. And that's reiterated here at verse 8, but we find the inclusion here of the message that the disciples were also challenged to carry with them. They were not simply to be a people working miracles and helping people and making folks' lives better, but they were also given the charge to proclaim, to represent the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says there that the essence of that message is simple. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's good news, it's the gospel, that's literally the word that we understand for being gospel. And when we proclaim the gospel, we're saying that we are sharing through our words and our actions the good news that is the story of Jesus Christ. And if our good news, if our witness is not good news, then maybe we've got the wrong news. Maybe we've tapped into the wrong channel or the wrong newspaper. If our good news as we live as Christians, if it is not making things better wherever we go through our acts of service and kindness and the words that we speak to other people, if it's only adding to the death and devastation that the world already knows, then we're in some kind of alternate gospel because the very essence of what Jesus came to proclaim was the good news. And the good news was not just, hey, our team won the game last night, or hey, the Romans are being run out of town. But the good news was that God had drawn near in the person of Jesus. His very Son had become the Word made flesh. And He came to live, and not just speak about the things of God, but to truly show us as human beings what God is like and what God has expected all of us to value in life and the quality of people that God wants us to be as we seek to live out our days here in this world. Notice how he describes the kingdom of heaven, the fact that it's come near. And that adds just a tad bit of urgency to the work that exists before the twelve. The fact that God is doing this work, it has started, it's not yet finished, but it's so important that you need to get to work, you need to get busy doing the things that I have commissioned you to do. Now, I know today it's been some 2,000 years since Jesus uttered these words from the time that he came and, and walked among us, what a lot of people would refer to as the first advent. And we continue to anticipate that second advent, that second coming. We don't know when that's going to take place, but one thing that's just as true today as it was back then is that Christ wants us to keep busy. It's not time to sit back on our laurels. It's not time just to to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait until whenever he should return. Jesus wants us to view the gospel and the fact that God's kingdom has come near with so much urgency. What are the things you consider to be urgent in your life or what do I consider to be urgent in my life? The things that are urgent are the things that are going to get Not just the best attention, but also the most attention. And we're going to do those things passionately, enthusiastically. If someone, for example, talks to me about a piece of farm equipment or car racing or NC State, I get pretty excited about that. That same sense of enthusiasm should also be translated into how I seek to live out Christ's teachings and how I seek to represent God in the world around me. When things are important to us, we get excited about them. And when we get excited about those things, people begin to take notice in the world around us. But Jesus says... It's not going to be easy. And that's one of the great truths about the entirety of the gospel, but especially the honesty of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus doesn't give fine print. Jesus doesn't tell just part of the story, follow me and things are going to be grand in your life. But Jesus says that if you join up with me, It's going to cost you something. It's going to challenge you. You're not going to be able to do this in your own human power and strength. You've got to lean upon me to accomplish this work in the world. And so as these disciples, these apostles are going forth, in some places they'll be greeted. There will be people who are hungry for the message that they had to bring. There would be people who needed healing and readily received them, but then there would be times when they would not be received nearly as warmly or welcomed as warmly. And in that moment, Jesus uses the language of shaking the dust off of one's feet. It was very common in that day and time for the average Jew when he or she would travel to a Gentile region and back, or through a Gentile region to go somewhere else. Once they would get close to going back into the Jewish land, that land that had been promised to God's people, they would shake the dirt off of their sandals because they did not want to take the contamination, if you will, of the Gentile property over into God's land. What in the world does that have to do with Going out and doing ministry, well, a simple way to put it would be this. I had a professor at Mount Olive some years ago that challenged us in some of our discussions and class debates. He would make a simple statement, know what hills are worth dying on in life. Know which battles are worth fighting. You can go in and try to convince someone that the way of Christ is true. You can go in and you can browbeat them and you can try to just really work them over and they still may not come to that faith. In fact, they may resent the faith even more so. But at least in those moments, we sow a seed, we're faithful to what God uses us for in that season, and then we move on. We don't continue to go on and on and on and on because a lot of times that going on and on does more damage than good to our witness and the reputation, the integrity, if you will, of the Christian faith. If you're received, so be it. If they don't listen, know that you have done your part and move along. But the tragic thing of all of this comes in verse 15 when it says, for those who reject the gospel, for those who will not receive Jesus, that day that's coming, that day of accountability, it's going to be easier on Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who reject the Son of God. And that's a powerful image that we find from the book of Genesis. And you know the backstory story of that is Lot and Abraham, they had separated. Lot and his family had moved closer to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The land was lush, it was full, it was beautiful pasture. Abraham settled farther away, but over time, Lot was lured into the enticements of Sodom and Gomorrah, and those reputations were very perverse. We don't have to go into all of the particular details, but they were not good, moral, and upstanding communities. And because of that, the judgment of God came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were destroyed. Now, we know that's a very tragic story within Scripture. It's one of the most tragic stories of the book of Genesis, if not the entirety of Scripture. But here for Jesus to say the judgment for the one who rejects the Son of God is going to be harsher than what Sodom and Gomorrah experienced, as horrible as that was, part of this here what Jesus is saying is it was bad for Sodom and Gomorrah But just think about it. They didn't have an opportunity to reject the Son of God. They had an opportunity to to change their ways, and certainly Abraham negotiated with God, trying to find a, a small portion of righteous people within those communities. But unfortunately, it was to no avail. But for the one who has had the opportunity and outright rejects Christ and what God is offering through Christ. That's not going to be a pretty occasion. It's going to be a time of reckoning, a time of accountability, and I don't know about you, but that's some territory I really wouldn't want to stand in. To stand before the Creator the Lord, but also the Savior of humanity, to know that there was opportunity to experience his love, his goodness, his grace through what Jesus accomplished on the cross at Calvary, and to turn our back on that. It's free. It's nothing that we can earn It's a gift there to be received that God is giving us with no strings attached. That is the gift that we represent in the world around us. That is the good news that we carry forth. May that good news be important to who we are in Christ. But may we also live in such a way that others may notice and receive this gift as well so that they will not experience those words that Jesus issues in Matthew 10, 15. Sisters and brothers, thank you for being with us this afternoon. Our time has come and gone rather quickly, but next week we will pick up in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Look forward to being with you as we continue to elaborate upon the mission of the Twelve and how that relates to who we are and how we live our faith today and the challenges that we will inevitably face the fact that being a Christian is not just about all of the gushy warm fuzzy things it will come with a price it will cost us in some cases everything that we have everything that we are as we dismiss may you be blessed may you enjoy this Easter weekend as we celebrate Not just what Christ represented, what he taught on Maundy Thursday, the sacrifice that he made on Good Friday, but as we anticipate the empty tomb, may God bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen.